This is hell. Live from late capitalism where property has more rights than people, this is hell and boy is that true when it comes to women's reproductive health care. When we are told stories about unexpected pregnancies, when it is mentioned in the news or on pandering mid-morning or early afternoon talk shows, when depicted in movies, TV, or on the stage, and often in music, those stories are usually filled with anguish, with uncertainty, with the intense drama of making a decision that we are often told will have a huge impact on the rest of any woman's life mentally, but also potentially physically. As a man, I cannot imagine what it is like, but I am led to believe by our media, culture, and society that, you know, I should be absolutely certain that this must be one of the most trying times of any woman's life. But it's not just the decision-making that must be difficult when it comes to an unexpected pregnancy. If the woman decides to end the pregnancy, that physical process, I've been told, is invasive, often painful. There's the suffering through the decision-making process, then the suffering during the abortion itself, if that is decided by the woman to take place. And then there's the post-procedure experience, and which we're told is also often very, very challenging. But what if all this drama is exaggerated, over-dramatized, over-traumatized? What if women simply know they want to go through with the pregnancy or not. That either decision can be just as definitive. What if the procedure is not that big of a deal, or wasn't until women's accessibility to drugs like methotrexate in mifepristone started becoming limited? These simple injections are safe and easy to administer with little, if any, discomfort to the woman. And of course, that means women are having their access to them limited because safe, effective, and painless is not the kind of health care the U.S. healthcare system apparently wants to provide to women. And it's not only the healthcare system in general that treats women poorly. Specifically, it's the women's health clinics themselves that are supposed to give women access to free and safe reproductive health care. Caring health care. In a few minutes, we'll speak with writer and publisher Charlotte Shane, who wrote the N Plus One magazine article, Three Times the Pregnancy Was the Crisis, Not the Abortion. Charlotte has a new book coming out later this month titled Prostitute Laundry, which is now in a third edition with an introduction by award-winning critic Joe Livingstone. At the Tiger Bee Press, her publisher's page for the book, it states, In the winter of 2014, writer and sex worker Charlotte Shane sent out her confessional letter to a small but devoted mailing list. In the months that followed, readership grew to over 5,000 subscribers who followed her candid, unstinting, sometimes heartbreaking meditations. Word spread quickly, garnering the project recognition from outlets such as The Washington Post and NPR. The collection is a thoughtful serial memoir about love, sex, money, and identity. Prostitute Laundry is a stylist, nonfiction you can't miss selection for 2023. Charlotte's writing has appeared in many publications and websites, including the New York Times Magazine, London Review of Books, Descent, Harper's New Inquiry, and Book Forum. You can find out more about Charlotte at charoshane.com. That's C-H-A-R-O-S-H-A-N-E.com. Follow Charlotte on Twitter at charoshane. 
I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Will Ippen. Will, what's new about you? Uh, same old, same old. Um, basketball playoffs are, uh, you know, are reaching you, an exciting point. Are you gambling? I'm not gambling. Um, I really want to do 5 and $10 gambling. Yeah, it's the best form of gambling, really. Exactly, the uh, kind that you can actually afford. Exactly. And then uh, my folks are coming in for a week. Uh, they're getting in this afternoon, so that'll be cool. I think my new rule for gambling is going to be if my bet is more than I can get for plasma, I shouldn't make that exactly. bet. Exactly. <laughs> it's a good rule of thumb. <laughs> Whatever the going rate of BioLife is, that's your gambling budget. Exactly. So what's new by me is no office hours tonight. It's like we're back in that time from late February 2020, right when the first cases of COVID were being reported in Chicago up until two and a half years later in September of 2022, just last year when we felt safe enough and that everyone else was acting safely enough to hang out with listeners in the beer garden outdoors behind Curry's Lounge, the bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, where we hold office hours, our weekly meet and greet, that's really a drink and think, every Wednesday evening at 2255, or sorry, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. Again, that's at Carrie's Lounge, C-A-R-Y-S. But we are taking the week off for a few reasons. One, I have some show work to catch up on as I have some upcoming events I have to attend, and so I gotta do some work way ahead of schedule. And two, I'm taking a temporary break from the sauce after falling flat on my face last week, and not that it was completely caused by alcohol or alcohol related, but the alcohol definitely did not help. My pandemic overindulgence seems to be catching up with me, and as I have an upcoming hernia surgery scheduled, I should probably take a breather from the sauce. Well, more importantly than what I hope will be the final uh, chapter in the story of me falling flat on my face, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, what intelligence will you be leaking on our Discord? What intelligence will you be leaking on our Discord? The person with our favorite answer to this. And by the way, if you want to be invited to our Discord, all you have to do is just go to our Facebook page and you click on the uh, Discord link at the question from hell and you can be with us on Discord. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie or toque if you prefer, as well as the This Is Hell guide to the 21st century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio, or you can email it to us at thisishellradio at gmail.com during today's show. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner. Following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth, Will, what is Jeff doing during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff wonders if we're all Waco. Are we all Waco, Texas? So we are only two and a half months away from the annual This Is Hell listener appreciation and anniversary party and art show, This Is Art. 
And this year we are celebrating our 27th year on air at WNUR-FM, Chicago Sound Experiment, where we started broadcasting way back in 1996 and began streaming and podcasting to the entire world in 2001. We were podcasting 22 years ago, four days after 9-11 was our first podcast. And in that first podcast, our first guest was the first live interview with Noam Chomsky following 9-11. We are now on a second outlet here in the Chicago area, as well as stations in Winnipeg, Moscow, that's Moscow, Idaho, and in London in the UK. Join us in celebrating 27 years on air on Saturday, July 22nd, beginning at 3 p.m. at the bars down, bar downstairs from where I'm sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. But you're probably wondering, that's not until July. Why bring it up now? Well, first, listeners may want to make travel plans. And as we have had people join us from all over the United States and from Canada and as far away as freaking Scotland, making those kinds of arrangements can be difficult and take a lot of time. So do it now. Second, because we want to make certain you mark Saturday, July 22nd, 3 p.m., Carrie's Lounge, This Is Hell Party in your calendar right now. That's why we want, we're reminding you right now. Put it in your calendar. Third, this is a listener appreciation party with music, art, food, and a raffle. So if you're a musician who would like to play our party or are in a band that would like to perform, contact me at chuckatthisishell.com with a sample of your music, and we actually pay our musical performers, probably more than we should. Remember, you will be playing while people are talking, drinking, and partying, so you got to be cool with that. Or if you know a musical act that would be a perfect match for the party, please send your suggestion again to chuck at thisishell.com. If you are an artist or know an artist that you believe would be, again, a perfect match for the annual This Is Art opening and show, send a sample of your work or your suggested artist. Artists, we do not take any commission. So 100% of all sales go to you. Finally, you have something. if you have something you would like to donate so we can put it in the raffle and give it out as a prize, send your suggestion and an image of the potential prize to chuck at thisishell.com. That's Saturday, July 22nd, the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party and Art Show at Carrie's Lounge. And we are already receiving prizes. One prize has been donated so far. The Tessa, T-E-S-A Collective, it's a game company, has sent us a card game called Space Cats Fight Fascism. And who knows, maybe it can be yours if you join us for the raffle during our upcoming party on Saturday, July 22nd with music, food, art, a raffle, and awesome gifts like Space Cats Fight Fascism. Coming up, what if, despite popular belief, the worst part of ending a, a pregnancy is not the abortion? Will shares more of your answers to this week's question from hell. We'll also tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell, which goes live on Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. We'll tell you what's happening next week here on This Is Hell, and Jeff Dorchin will be delivering this week's moment of truth. You are listening to God's favorite radio show. Prove me wrong. Please. For God's sake. Prove me wrong. This is hell. Okay, maybe we're not God's favorite radio show. How the hell should I know? Especially if you are someone who believes in abortion, goes against your religious beliefs in a higher power, whatever that may be. You might think this is in no way can be God's favorite radio show. 
And if you don't want to have an abortion, I mean, that's fine. But just as you are absolutely certain you want to have that baby, other women have the exact opposite response, belief, and conviction. Sadly, when the opposite is chosen, women increasingly seem to not be getting the physical and emotional care they need. Here to help us have a better understanding of not only abortion, but more importantly, pregnancy. Writer and publisher Charlotte Shane wrote the N Plus One magazine article three times, the pregnancy was the crisis, not the abortion. Welcome to This Is Hell, Charlotte. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for being on our show. I really appreciate it. This is a very enlightening uh, read, especially for somebody who is a dude. Uh, So Charlotte has a new book coming out later this month titled Prostitute Laundry with an introduction by award-winning critic Joe Livingstone. And you can find out more about Charlotte at charoshane.com and you can follow her on Twitter at charoshane. You begin by writing summer 2009, the first time seemed the fastest. My best friend Emily took charge. She texted me, call this clinic, and after I left the gynecologist's office where a woman I'd met twice uh, for annual checkups informed me I was pregnant. When I told the woman I wanted an abortion, she said her practice didn't offer them because one of the partners was pro-life. How surprised were you, if at all, when your regular gynecologist's office would not perform an abortion because one of the partners was pro-life? Because this is an obstacle to women's health care that I don't think everybody knows about. So how surprised were you that you couldn't get an abortion at your regular gynecologist? Well, you know, um, this was this was many years ago. I was much younger and um, the climate was a little different. And I just naively believed I, I knew that um, abortion was theoretically legal in the United States. And um, I was living in a metropolitan area, like an urban area. And uh, it just, I didn't, it didn't occur to me that I would be pregnant. And it didn't occur to me that my gynecologist wouldn't be the one helping me obtain an abortion when I needed one. Um, So in a lot of ways, I was very naive. And it's kind of funny to look back and think about my expectation that it would just be like... um, a more matter-of-fact form of healthcare, um, but yeah, I was I was really shocked. To, I was so shocked to find out I was pregnant, and then I was so shocked to immediately be kind of told, like, "Well, you should go Google what your options are." <laughs> um, that um, that whole episode was just um, incredibly strange to me, and um, even even though I knew that there were obviously very strident abortion opponents in the world. Um, it just hadn't occurred to me that somebody providing health care specifically for like women and their reproductive needs um, would be so quick to absolve herself of, of participating in it in any way. Um, and, uh, you know, now I, I mean, I I imagine there are many people even then who would have thought it was silly for me to take it for granted that she would be um, useful to me in that moment. Um, Now, I think it feels maybe a little less shocking um, because obviously what we've seen with like the leak of the Dobbs opinion and then the official um, Dobbs opinion and the constant, you know, higher profile battles going on right now. 
Why do you think you, because I, I think that you probably shared this feeling and shared this understanding with a lot of women back in 2009 when you had your first abortion. Why do you think that the process, why did you think that process was going to be so matter of fact? Do you think that it's not just you, but that all women, even today in 2023, in states where an abortion is still very accessible, do you think they still... Uh, think of it as a very taken for granted matter of fact thing. What leads us, what leads women to that opinion that it is matter of fact and can be taken for granted that you can just walk in and get an abortion, in a, especially in a state where it is allowed? Well, for myself, um, back then, you know, it's like well over a decade. Um, my impression was that anti abortionists were a fringe group. And they were driven by, you know, a religious conviction that precluded them from supporting a, a really wide variety of things. Right? I just so solidly saw it as fringe. And they are they are a fringe, you know, like polls continually show that um, Americans don't want abortion to be legal. They don't want a broad mandate of um no legal abortion and even recent developments like you know Nebraska defeated this abortion ban you, you know it's just it's not it's not a popular proposition um which has never really <laughs> stopped um varieties of <laughs> laws from coming into being here but um i so i just thought i just thought okay if you have signed up to provide care for women part of that is you know, you're a doctor, you understand that abortions are oftentimes quite strictly, like physically, medically speaking, necessary. Um, and you won't have an, you wouldn't get into this field if you had an objection to that. Of course, that's, that again, was it's a very naive idea. Like plenty of architects of anti-abortion legislation are, have worked in gynecology or like obstetrics. Um, but before, before the Dobbs opinion, um, the ramping up of um, the visibility, I suppose, of anti-abortion sentiment and the, you know, unfortunately very canny and effective tactics of anti-abortion um, agitators, you know, like late-term abortion, like getting these things into the public conscious consciousness where abortion is seen as extreme where it's seen as something especially shameful or um, contentious too it feels to me that it's really important that the people who are against abortion are continually able to position it as you know quote unquote a wedge issue and like something that is super divisive and that will never come to you know common ground on because it's just too too divisive and and that's I don't believe that that's the case um because I think most people are decent people and they <laughs> see the logic, I suppose, in not forcing um, someone to die because they're pregnant or not forcing them to give birth to, um, you know, a being that's not capable of survival or give birth to a stillborn baby. And, um, you know, years before the leak of the Dobbs decision, I think it was the Guttmacher Institute uh, released a report saying that well, many people across the United States would be Googling, is abortion legal? Because at that point, the 
public sort of conversation about it was such that it you might not know, you know, especially in your state, um, that it was incredibly demonized, stigmatized, you know, um, constant um, regulations put into place to limit access. And um, a lot of people, you know, pre-Dobbs, when, the again, theoretically abortion was legal, Roe Ro was still in place, um, would be Googling, is abortion legal? Because you it wasn't easy to discern, you know, if you're just kind of taking in like the ambient um, conversations. So you also write that I asked how I asked how far along I had to get uh, get an abortion. And the woman at the uh, gyneco- gynecological clinic uh, that you go to said inc- incorrectly that it was eight weeks. I asked her to recommend where to go. And as you were saying earlier, I, I she told me to use Google. I asked what to look for when I search, and she said, you never know what you're getting. Some doctors are good, but some, you replied, yes, some doctors are bad. And you had that she was visibly displeased with the, the speed and certainty of my response. Did she seem uninformed or that she was just going through her daily job? This is just the steps that she goes through or that she just didn't care? Did you get the feeling that her response, the response that you were getting was because of that individual person you were talking to, or do you think in some way she was a reflection of the entire system of women's reproductive health care? Well, my my impression of her was that, um, you know, as I remember it, I came in, it was kind of a routine, it was a, a routine visit. And I mentioned to her, I, my period was late. And she said, okay, well, well, we'll give you, you know, could you be pregnant? And I think I said, oh, well, like, maybe, but, you know, probably not. And she just said, okay, well, we'll give you like a urine test. So she left the room, um, you know, after I guess I, I came back in and I had like peed in the cup, whatever. And she came back in and she said, well, you're pregnant. And I was like, what? Um, this is a really strange moment, a very strange moment um, to just be blithely assuming you're not pregnant and then find out you're pregnant. It's a real abrupt um, piece of news to receive. And and I immediately said, you know, can I get my abortion here? And I think that really... Uh, made her mad. I do not think she liked, I think what she thought or wanted to have happen was some type of, you know, emotional, like, oh my, oh my God, oh my God. Or like, even if it were, even if it were me kind of maybe visi- visibly panicking in front of her and saying, oh, I don't know what to do. I don't, oh, oh my God, like, what, you know, oh, all right, I'm a mix of emotions right now. <laughs> What I don't think she was expecting was sort of a 30-second delay, you know, probably before I said, do you guys do abortion? (laughs) Um, And I think that was the source of her disapproval. You know, if you're someone who, who, um, if you're kind of like a natalist, a gender essentialist, if you're someone who thinks, you know, oh, anyone capable of like getting pregnant should have a maternal instinct or should want to be pregnant or should at the very least be, you know, spending a lot of um, deeply introspective time over like pondering their capacity for pregnancy, you know, then then it like is very moral, right, to see somebody say, I don't want to be pregnant. And particularly for them to say, I don't want to be pregnant when they are pregnant. It's like atrocious. It's, you know what I mean? Like, that's a very 
basic sort of form of misogyny, you know, is to be like, uh, so a woman rejecting motherhood is an especially like grotesque creature, like antisocial, you know, a real threat to um, the fabric of the community. And I feel like that was what was going on with her was just like, oh, this like frivolous little idiot, you know, doesn't even understand that like she should be she should at the very least feel guilty, right? You know, like tears, there should be happy tears, there should be scared tears, like, there should be something more than this, like, immediate knowledge of like, oh, I need an abortion. See, that's the amazing insight that I really enjoyed in your article, and that's why I'm so glad that we're having you on the show today. You write, Emily was eight years older than me. This is the friend of yours who helped you uh, throughout your first uh, unwanted pregnancy and had seven abortions by the time we met, then uh, more once I knew her. That scandalized me. As for everyone, there were circumstances. She was allergic to latex, couldn't tolerate hormones, never wanted to have kids. I didn't believe abortion was wrong in an absolute sense, yet seven was somehow too many. Get it together already is what you're thinking. So you've clearly changed your perspective since meeting your now friend, Emily, and I know this is anecdotal, but I have heard people who see themselves as pro-choice who are also very critical of those who have had, quote-unquote, too many abortions. What does that reveal to you about the way even pro-choice liberals understand abortion in the United States, that we can share the ideas of being pro-choice and someone having too many abortions. What does that reveal about the way we view abortion in the United States? Um, yeah, I I think it is um, part, you know, it's part of a legacy or a vestige of this tremendous sentimentality around motherhood. And um, it's kind of one of those, I think, like latent things that we can, you know, inherit or, or just soak up and never really examine and aren't especially called to examine or challenged to examine because for so long, the official line has been that abortion is an incredibly sad thing. So even you know, or even, you know, it's not maybe the right word, like, particularly when Democrats are talking about it, it's like, well, this is a tragedy, but, you know, it does need to happen sometimes, or like, it should happen, but, you know, safe, legal, rare, it's the the rare conveys that there is something, this is not desirable, right? Like, abortions are not desirable. Some failure has occurred. It's a really unfortunate, you know, undesirable situation that should be avoided. And it feels very radical to a lot of people, again, even people who identify as pro-choice, to look at like, why why do I think abortions should be avoided? Really just the question feels really threatening. You know, it feels like you're going down some path of like, approving murder <laughs> because the association of abortion and murder has been made so effectively even among people who are able to recognize people who are pregnant are still people the pregnancy is happening to them <laughs> this is not like just inside of them it's to, it's happening to them and they should probably be the ones deciding what happens you know, with that pregnancy, to that pregnancy. Um, 
And part of why it's a threatening thought is because most people who are pregnant are women and it's scary to think about, you know, turning, like allowing women that much autonomy um, and really recognizing them as like discrete individuals and being willing to forfeit the idea that any person's pregnancy is the state's business and like the state should be able to say how they manage it, what they do with it, when they get pregnant, why they get pregnant, you know, on and on and on, which I think, I hope more people are starting to become aware of post-Dobbs because just for myself, I've seen a lot more um, news stories, like prominent coverage of women who are being penalized for their pregnancy, whether they keep it, whether they wanted it, you know, the, the state of being pregnant makes them so vulnerable to exploitation. So uh, how uninformed do you think women are about women's health needs and services in the United States? Do you think uh, you were an outlier when it came to being uh, uninformed on reproductive health care? Or was Emily, who was the person who helped you so much throughout this whole process, was she the outlier in the knowledge that she had? How accessible is women's health care knowledge to women in the United States today? Um, right. I mean, Emily was a, just like a blessing to me. And um, I don't I don't know how I would have gone about, you know, found it, finding on Emily if I hadn't just happened to know her. So there are abortion doulas, um, but I don't think there are many of them. I don't think they're easy to find. And particularly right now, if you're in a state where abortion is heavily criminalized, it's really scary to try to go looking for this stuff, you know, like you're to search online for it um, can feel like really self-incriminating. Like, um, I think that the, you know, talking about abortion as healthcare necessarily brings up all of these issues with our healthcare system, which is like the healthcare system as a whole isn't oriented around making people feel informed and supported and safe. And, you know, our, our healthcare system is a nightmare. Like nobody, nobody goes through it and thinks like, what a wonderful experience. Everyone was so kind. I always understood exactly what was going on. My needs were always being met and respected. And, you know, I was treated with respect at every turn. It's like, it just, it doesn't happen. I mean, when you find a doctor who makes you feel that way, it's like the heavens have opened up, you know, and you're just like, oh my God, this is the most remarkable experience of my life. So in some ways, and like, I don't, necessarily feel like um kind of like the um the callousness or some of like the negligence around the administration of abortion care is necessarily that they make it really difficult for you to set things up for yourself sort of um and and make the help of someone who knows how to navigate the system or is familiar with it even more invaluable so are women increasingly dependent upon each other for health services rather than actual health service providers and offices? Are women's health services moving into that same 
self-care direction as so much of U.S. healthcare is. You know, I was in the hospital for 15 days last uh, year. I had a a massive surgery. I was, there was a 60-40 chance that I was not going to survive. And the one thing that I kept hearing in the uh, hospital was, you know, we got to get you out of here as soon as possible. And your partner is now going to be the person who's going to be caring for you. And they have to learn all of the things that they need to do to maintain you physically. And that's now your full-time nurse. They even, uh, we actually had a nurse come into my home who told my uh, partner, they told her, listen, uh, you know, you can't have a full-time job now. Your full-time job now is to be taking care of him. So is that the direction that women's reproductive health care has gone in, where it's become self-care, where it's become women taking care of women and not necessarily having a health care service to depend upon? Um, well, I, I think that there is a greater interest. I don't know how it would maybe be managed outside, pardon me, like um, measured outside of maybe looking at like internet search results or something like that. But it does seem like the interest in, or if you want to frame it as like a demand for self-managed abortion, it gets like continuously higher because I do think so many um, people have had really ugly, like traumatizing or, you know, shaming experiences by going into clinics. So they want to have their abortions outside of the clinic atmosphere, which can be done safely for sure. And like myself, I'm someone who, if I had a daughter who needed an abortion, I think I'd be trying really hard to like keep her out of a clinic if I could, because I do think that um, there are a lot of tools and resources to help people have abortions safely at home. And, you know, like the government knows that. That's why mifepristone is like the target. Do you know what I mean? Like, they know very well that like abortion clinics are not necessary for many abortions. A lot of abortions can be done at home. Um, and I suppose that there are probably a lot of pregnant people who wish they could get away with less interference from like either the medical like establishment or, you know, unfortunately, like the government, that's the thing, like, it's very expensive too, right? To um to as you know, as you're saying, like to have your partner to have people close to you care for you, even if they're capable of or they want to do it, like are they able to take the time? It's just like I'm thinking like my friends who are sort of like wealthier maybe can afford like pregnancy doulas or at home births or stuff. And I think for a lot of people that is it's really difficult, you know, or like if you're housing insecure, how are you gonna have a home birth? Like there are so many considerations going into um, how people are trying to manage like and you know resolve their pregnancies safely um it it's a big mess <laughs> yeah. uh, you mentioned that uh, so you got an injection of methotrexate with your first abortion you write that the shot went in my hip I rested my elbows on a table and wiggled my ass with a skirt up to make Emily and the nurse laugh which is hilarious I asked the doctor if I could hug him and didn't wait for an answer I was giddy with freedom the new appreciation for freedom high on the awareness of diverted catastrophe so this, as you know, this isn't the story we usually hear about abortion as one of liberation and being, as you describe it, giddy. 
although I've heard this exact same story from many, many friends of mine who have had abortions. What is usually told is one of drama and difficult choices and concerns of future regrets, if not as a story of liberation. So why do we not hear more of the story of diverting catastrophe at the very least? If not as a story of liberation and freedom and giddiness, why don't we hear the story of diverting catastrophe? Um. I guess it seems really important to um, the the project of um, gender norms and like uh, social control to, you know, to keep insisting that motherhood is um, the sort of like beified state, like that it's the ultimate in self-fulfillment, particular, you know, for women <laughs> and that, um, that it's a route to kind of like um what's the word I'm looking for? Like like social prestige, you know? Um, that it's like the ult- the ultimate thing a woman can do is be a mother. And so consequently, you know, even if you again, like if you're a Democrat, if you're kind of a you know, a liberal with your pro-choice, whatever. So you're like, okay, well, sometimes people need abortions or, you know, a need becomes like, oh, they, you know, somebody can't afford a, a child right now, or they want to finish school first, which is what a lot of these stories that I have come across, you know, in my many years of like consuming this stuff and searching it out too. A lot of books even from, you know, abortion doctors sometimes write these books and like, God bless the abortion providers, but unfortunately, a lot of their books, in my opinion, like reiterate this notion of like, here are all the people deserving of abortions. You know, it's the college student who she just wants to finish her education. So she, you know, she doesn't have a baby right now. It's the it's the girl who's in a relationship with an abusive boyfriend. So like, it's, this is not the right relationship. It's the woman who's already had, you know, three kids. So she's like done her duty. She gets a break. And the subtext of it is the the woman's going to have a, a baby. You know what I mean? So maybe not right now, or she already did it. So she doesn't want to do it again. But it's like motherhood is, is part of her future or part of her present, part of her past. She can't escape motherhood. So of course you don't want to tell stories of women who feel fine not being pregnant or not being a mother. Um, that that it felt like part of the liberal bargain of like, okay, well, abortion is legal, but we're, we're all going to treat it like it sh- kind of shouldn't be, you know, like it, there is something sort of wrong with it. I feel like the reversal of the regret narrative was already taking place um, pre the leak of the Dobbs decision. But even that seems, you know, very slow coming, you know, for the longest time, it was just sort of take it for granted that oh, yeah, well, w- women have abortions, but they really regret them, you know, and and um, that that I think now at this point, it's been proven that is not true at all, that very few women regret their abortions and overwhelmingly they are pleased with their decision. We are speaking with writer and publisher Charlotte Shane, who wrote the N Plus One magazine article three times, The Pregnancy Was the Crisis, 
not the abortion. Charlotte has a new book coming out later this month titled Prostitute Laundry with an introduction by award-winning critic Joe Livingston. You can, uh, and that's, by the way, is a stylist nonfiction you can't miss selection for 2023. Find out more about Charlotte at charoshane.com. Follow Charlotte on Twitter at charoshane. So you describe how when you eventually passed your uh, the, the uh, baby, I don't know what, how we can describe it, you describe how a large clot came out a week later. It was probably just uterine lining or maybe the mucus plug, though I don't didn't know that then. My mind was still is filled with the images that illustrate news stories and generic medical literature. The pink-hued, magnified little astronaut in profile, the heavy head, the lidless black eye. I wanted to take it home to keep inspecting, though I didn't do that. I wanted to tell everyone in the store what had happened to me because this happened in a store. You went to the bathroom and it just happened in the store. What came out, I didn't do that either. This sort of thing happens all the time, I suppose, but it was the first time it happened to me. It happens all of the time. How much do you think increasing awareness that this does happen all the time? How much do you think that's good for those who want to support women's rights or as bad as that might lead to blowback from the Christian right? Do you think politically does abortion need to stay in the closet to some degree, and that is best for women's rights? Um, no, I mean, I, I think it's obvious that you can't placate people whose impulses are like fundamentally fascist, right? There's no, I mean, this is the kind of like classic um, dynamic of of liberalism right is that you have <laughs> that you have basically a fascist on one side and you have like a communist or something on the other and liberals the person standing in the middle being like surely we can like find some middle ground you know where it's like um like no you can't find middle ground with like white supremacists like you can't find middle ground with misogynists like these people's demands and desires are not reasonable they're not you, you know you can't like give them an inch and have them feel satisfied. Um, so I just, I, I don't, I don't believe, I guess, in like the bargain of um, pretending something is other than it is. Um, it just, it, it feels to me like that's what um, the, you know, the, the Democrats played that game for a while. Um and 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 we can see where it got us and where it's gotten them, which is probably unfortunately um a lot of donations. Um but uh I just abortion is so common and um you know there's that very famous kind of like uh, the protest sign, you know, aphorism or whatever of like someone you know has had an abortion. I it's it's really true. I mean, I as I say in the piece, I was just bowled over by how many people, how many women in my lives had had abortions that I didn't know about. And it just like hadn't come up before. I don't necessarily think they were keeping it from me. I never asked, you know, um, and I don't think everybody wants to talk about their abortion and that's fine. I don't think everyone has to. Um, I also, you know, in spite of what like the existence of this essay might suggest, like I think a lot of times the abortion storytelling can be of limited sort of like um, political utility, but um, I do think it's important to destigmatize it and not to treat it as something really weird. I, I, I'm, it's like birth is 
in a way it's so mundane, right? Like I obviously like it is, it is miraculous and it's also kind of mundane and conception. It's like, same thing, you know, how many, how many people have, have miscarried and not even known it. Right. You know, it's like a crazy amount of, um, early pregnancies and in like spontaneous miscarriage. Right. So, um, so that if, if there's, I think if there could be less sort of like magical thinking or kind of like faux reverence around all of it it would be better for everyone too just from like an emotional health kind of mental health standpoint not even ex exclusively like political right but it's a reminder though of the political power of the weaponization of shame how difficult is it for women to get over that sense of shame that is imposed upon them once they do have an abortion? Was that difficult for you to get over, even though that you were happy to have the pregnancy you know, done with? At the same time, there is that sense that you're supposed to feel shame. So how difficult is it and how can women get over that political power of the weaponization of, sh of shame when it comes to reproduction? Um, yeah, I mean, I never felt ashamed of my abortions. Like I just, I'm not really, I'm, I, this is like my personality type is just not. I'm but did, not did you well. get the, did you get the feeling that you were expected to feel shame? Um, well, like socially, I suppose, you know, there's an expectation that maybe I should be upset or something, but I, that would, that isn't my, um, you know, my, the people in my life, like the type of places I live, you know, it's, it's one thing for me to say, oh, I'm not ashamed. It's, a, you know, a different thing for like a Catholic college girl to say she's not ashamed. But I will say that, I mean, people who are pregnant and who get an abortion, like they, they, they know their situations, you know, like they, and they might say what people want to hear and they might be conflicted because of inter, you know, because of like their own, just their own beliefs. They might feel conflicted because of external pressures, whatever. But um, like women are just, I, they're not, I don't know they're given enough credit. Like, um, so if somebody asks, you know, if, if the person asking the question once you just say like, yeah, I feel ashamed or I'm sad or whatever, you know, you might tell them what they want to hear. It doesn't necessarily mean you feel that way. Um, and just, you know, since I've been like, I've, you know, worked with an abortion hotline and spoken with a lot of people who need abortions and they are very clear. I mean, if they're very clear on what they need and why, and their self-knowledge is sort of like more powerful than anything you know other people could could like intuit or it's i mean i I've, I've just spoken with so many people who are like yeah i mean there are people who are pregnant who don't want abortions they wish they could have their fourth child or their fifth child and they're like i can't afford we can't afford it we cannot afford it like or they they physically can't go through it again you know, like they've went, they've gone through a pregnancy that was incredibly difficult and taxing on their body. And they're like, I really don't think I can withstand another pregnancy, but I wish I could, you know, it's like the complexities of like an interior life, another person's interior life. Like, I don't know. I mean, it's like other people will never have 
anything that useful to say about it. I don't know. I just like, I mean, there's still a way of like talking about abortion that just weirdly treats women like they don't know what's going on or that they don't understand something. And it's like that in my experience, like that's not the case. Like, you know, there people getting abortions are usually like very capable, thoughtful, aware people, and they definitely know themselves and their situation better than anyone else. But you uh, also mentioned, though, uh, humiliation. You write that the the dream of the herbal abortion, as you talk about alternative ways of having an abortion and how you can do these things at your home instead of being uh, actually in uh, healthcare services. You write the dream of the herbal abortion for me too was a dream of restored dignity and power, a corrective to the humiliating vulnerability of being unwillingly pregnant. How can an uh, pregnancy cause a sense of humiliation? Or again, is that sense of humiliation something that is weaponized and imposed on you by people at abortion service clinics? Well, I mean, totally not not abortion providers exclusively, right? But like, I mean, you just think about the number of obstacles put in front of someone in Texas who's pregnant and who needs an abortion and knows they need an abortion. But it's like, well, you know, they might have family members willing to try to blackmail that like very prominently. Like there was a story about um, this Texas woman who's like whose partner was trying to blackmail her by like finding the abortion pills, you know, because they have like Texas has that like mercenary part of Texas has that mercenary law. That's kind of like you can turn in someone who was going to have an abortion or did have an abortion um, like real psycho, like, you know, um, that healthcare again in general in in um in our country it's like set up to dehumanize you it's a, everyone needs help like at some point in their lives right but you have these systems that are engineered to make you feel like it's a failing to need help um and to kind of exploit or inflict further helplessness so if you are pregnant in Texas and you need an abortion, okay, you have to figure out where to go. How are you going to do that without searching online, right? Like, what, like, how would you even begin? What are you going to do? Look at a phone book? You're not going to look at a Texas phone book because it's illegal in Texas. So, you know, you've got to get out of the state. So you've got to have the money to get out of the state. You've got to be able to contact another clinic out of the state. Or you have to obtain, you know, the necessary... Um, supplements like you have to obtain medication or if you want to try herbal abortion you know you have to get that stuff and then you have to know what to do with it you have to know the protocol to administer to yourself so you need help that's okay there's nothing wrong with it but the situation can be engineered to make you feel ashamed of needing help you know no matter how committed you are to your abortion um and especially if you have people refusing to help you you know that's like a really uncomfortable position to be in um and I know it's just on my mind because of like the murder of Jordan Neely you know like it's it's a really intense thing to need help and be denied help when you know that it's available you know you're like abortion is <laughs> is possible right like there are people who can give it to me in a surgical setting there's the medication there are the herbs like abortion should be possible and if it's being withheld you know you're being kept from it it's a really frustrating, like it is an intensely emotional uh, feeling, you know, to think that you can't access what you need, right? It's a really effective tool for making someone feel 
dehumanized is right kind of like dangle something they need and be like you can't have it you write that i knew at an early age i never wanted to have kids but i didn't think i was the type of girl who would have an abortion certainly not more than one not because of adherence to a religious or natalist ideology but because i was too educated too responsible which is an ideology too so is abortion framed in your opinion as something done by women who are uneducated and irresponsible and how is seeing yourself as being too educated too responsible an ideology a political belief in our political culture is is it an ideology of class race is it about white privilege um well you know i sort of grew up basically being told in you know however many words that birth control obviates the need for abortion which is, a, I imagine, like a very familiar sentiment to most people, right? So the idea is kind of like hormonal birth control, particularly if hormonal birth control exists, which it does, no one should ever need an abortion, right? There is a way of thinking like that. And then maybe that way of thinking kind of allows for like, well, um, you know, abortion is necessary for the wanted pregnancies who become dangerous for the pregnant person or the wanted pregnancies that are revealed, you know, further down the line, you realize the fetus isn't going to be viable. Um, but there, I grew up with this very strict dividing line between birth control and abortion. And this, this um, emphasis on the notion that abortion isn't birth control and can't be birth control, which of course, like you put your thinking cap on for like half a second and you're like, it is literally what could more literally be birth control than abortion, <laughs> right? Like, um, <laughs> but, but that was, and that is, that's part of, you know, the notion again, that like part of why abortion is shameful, part of why it should be rare is because there's no excuse for an unwanted pregnancy, right? There's no excuse for it. It just shouldn't be happening. Um, and, that's wrong. You know, like hormonal birth control doesn't work for everybody. Condoms, you know, don't work for everybody. There's a failure rate. And sometimes people just don't want to use them. Do you know what I mean? Like we have to deal with the real world. We're living in the real world. Sometimes birth control is not used. The preventative birth control is not used. Um, and, and does that mean like abortion should should be withheld as a punishment, right? I feel like that is what people think. They think, okay, well, part of the punishment is if you weren't willing to take, you know, the birth control pill, if you weren't willing to make your partner wear a condom, because unfortunately it's never like the fault of a man who impregnates someone for not wearing a condom. It's like the fault of the person who got pregnant for not forcing the guy to wear a condom, which like if you are anyone who's ever had sex with like, a man like it's it is not the easiest task to make him wear a condom if he doesn't want to um so you know that's that's when you get these like exceptions right the workarounds which are like okay well in cases of rape then abortion is how sad but yeah we need it you know or in the case of threatening the life of the mother again like oh tragedy but yeah we need it um and to kind of integrate i think to reintegrate abortion into just an understanding of birth control requires seeing people who can get pregnant and who people who are pregnant as autonomous individuals right and and saying like they determine what happens to their body they determine that and it you know at, at no point in their decision in their process 
of being a living be living being with their own body do i get to come in and say like no this is what should be happening to your body right now um and you know my my body my choice is like such a cliche it's easy to not really think about it but i think if you do sit and you tease it out it's like at what point should i be allowed to tell any stranger what they do with their body and this is part of you know this is another entry point you know of connection for people between like the struggle for trans rights and um abortion rates because they are connected you know it's this idea of like who who gets to tell other people what they do with their physical form in my opinion nobody does but on the rights opinion you know they do they get to tell a lot of us what happens with our bodies to our bodies inside our bodies you write that a nurse at Planned Parenthood once told your friend Emily that she wished abortions were more painful to discourage women from coming back she thought it was Emily's first and apparently presumed it would be her only abortion. Emily, like me, is white. You write then that even when not pregnant, women's clinics due to their ghettoization, the abhorrent state of health care in general, and the ambient desperation and shame surrounding women's sexuality are where I've most regularly felt despised. And so the terribleness of my second abortion had been intelligible. So is all this intentional and do you, does misery work as a deterrence to getting pregnant again? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't because, I, you know, I got pregnant my third time after that second abortion, which was really unpleasant. And, and well, even before I had ever been pregnant, you know, I, um, I went to Planned Parenthood for birth control, you know, from like the, whenever, you know, the, like my teenage years, like the point at which I was sexually active, whatever, I always went to Planned Parenthood until I stopped going to Planned Parenthood. But um, I had this moment and when I lived in Philadelphia, when I was at, in the Planned Parenthood clinic and it was very crowded and there were a lot of people there with kids and it was really kind of like cacophonous and it just, it felt, it, you know, it kind of felt like, like the DMV on a bad day. And I was just looking around and it, it's like there were no men there and feeling like really kind of like uh, it was just like a radicalizing moment because I was looking at, you know, it, it was an awareness of, you know, this uh, intentional degradation which is not to lay it at the feet of Planned Parenthood, you know, but it was a, it was confrontation with um, the complete abandonment of mothers in this country, right? Where it's like, you are on your own, like, good luck finding childcare. We don't give a, shit, you know, like, and the same thing with healthcare, right? We're seeing like, oh my God, this health healthcare is such a nightmare. Like, why, why can't we just get what we need, what we need? You know, why, why isn't, why is hormonal birth control not available over the counter? Why? Profit motive. It's available over the counter in other countries. There's not, you know, I, I, I remember like asking this question many times and being told it's because it's like dangerous for people who smoke. I mean, it's like absurd, right? Why did the FDA take so long to approve Plan B? Why did it take so long to approve like the abortion pill? All of these are safe. You know, it, it just, it doesn't have to be this way. It's like the comf the the eternal um, realization, <laughs> like the leftist, right? Anytime you're like out in the world dealing with anything, it's just being like, 
oh, it doesn't have to be this way, <laughs> even though we're told it does have to be this way. It doesn't. Um, and you just, I remember, I have a very clear memory when I was in grad school, my landlord, like the husband of my landlord who came over, he was working on something and he was like an academic. You know, they were both academics. I'm sure they had this place as like um, an investment. And he was talking about AIDS and he was saying, he was like, what, if we could just, he, and he was saying that like the absurd thing about AIDS is that it wouldn't exist if everybody would just wear condoms. And I, you know, I, this, that was like 20 years ago or something. I think about it all the time still because it's kind of like, it's just like, yeah, but, but have you ever heard of human behavior? Like, that's so weird. It's so <laughs> weird to act like we're living in some type of like, sim simulation you know where you can just program people and tell them what to do and like nobody ever gets confused or makes a mistake or they never have an impulse and you know there's no such thing as like sexual assault um like so it's just like yeah no matter how um difficult or painful or punishing or shameful or humiliating you want to make it for a person to get pregnant, you know, pregnancy is not, um, it's, it's like a, a bodily function. You know what I mean? It's like, it, it's not, there's no direct analogy for any other bodily function, but like if sperm meets an egg inside of you and that egg hooks onto the wall, you're pregnant. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter what you want, what you don't want, what your intention was. So, um, I mean that it, that's part of like, the the sadism of the engineered cruelty right it's like the idea is kind of like the the hope i think for a certain group of people is like if you're unintentionally pregnant it's it's still your fault right so it was unintended but it's still your fault so like some punishment is okay and is warranted um and i just think like we have to totally disabuse we have to like clean out and root out every last little piece of like that type of thinking because it's a really sick mindset to have. It is a sick mindset to have, but it is also because it's so part of our culture, it is really difficult to overcome, which is too bad. And I hope that more and more people can overcome it. We've been speaking to writer and publisher Charlotte Shane, who wrote the N Plus One magazine article, three times the pregnancy was the crisis, not the abortion. Charlotte has a new book coming out later this month titled Prostitute Laundry with an, uh, with an introduction by award-winning critic Joe Livingston, which you should go check out. Find out more about Charlotte at charoshane.com. Follow Charlotte on Twitter at charoshane. One last question for you, Charlotte. And I promise, I promise we do this with all of our guests. Our final question is what we call the question from hell. It's the question we hate to ask. I promise. I hate to ask this question. You will hate to answer. Or maybe our audience will just hate your response. And that's probably the category where it falls in right here. And both those who are supporters of and opponents of Planned Parenthood are probably going to hate your response to this question. Do you think Planned Parenthood, as you experienced it, in the practice the practices you witnessed discourages abortions um yeah i think that i i am definitely not an expert but i think that planned parenthood has rightly been criticized for like a slew of failings and that what we saw post release of the dobbs opinion was an unwillingness 
from them to really fight hard for abortion rights. So if I'm remembering correctly, which is like a unfortunately possibly a big f um (laughs) (laughs) they they said you know they were kind of like okay well we will stop providing you know once all of those trigger laws fell into place right all those states that um had the laws on the books ready to criminalize abortion they said okay well we're going to stop providing abortion in those places they didn't say you know we're going to we are going to fight we're going to take it to court right they just immediately folded um And Planned Parenthood is still, you know, when people think of like a place to donate, a place to volunteer to support abortion rights, Planned Parenthood is still very much in the forefront of their minds. So those like big not-for-profits, you know, they unfortunately are often not earning their reputation and just consolidating like money and, and taking like a more cowardly way out. So unfortunately, I think the answer to the question for myself is yes, they are. And so that will piss off both supporters and opponents of Planned Parenthood. Charlotte, I really appreciate you being on the show. Uh, The next time you have a book coming out, the next time you'd like to be on the show because you have a brand new article coming out, please contact us. If you have an email list, put us on it because we would love to have you back on the show again. This has been, like I said earlier, a very, very enlightening writing and very enlightening conversation. I truly appreciate it. Thank you so much for inviting me. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996. This is hell. God, I love that tagline. Thank you, Chris Bigosinski. If what you just heard from Charlotte gave you a better understanding of not only pregnancy but abortion, if in her description of the condescending care she received reminded you that, yes, good Lord, this really is hell, show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast, which goes live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. Or just go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can support This Is Hell. Will, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are responding so far. This week's question from hell is... What intelligence will you be leaking on our Discord? The implication there is that people are intelligent. <laughs> uh, let's see. On Twitter, we have uh, Petre G says that video games are military recruiting disguised as entertainment. Yeah, you yes, think? they are. You think? Have you been to a Marvel movie lately? <laughs> yeah, no Jesus kidding. criminy. Um, Eatfart69 says the answer to life, the universe, and everything. Wow. No. Oh. Good luck to you. Let's see, and then over on Facebook. Please forward us that. <laughs> yeah, when you please. Find out. Um, on Facebook, Neil C says the Porcupine Papers: a list of everyone who is just a prick. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's okay. a good one. I yeah. like that one, Neil C. File that one away. That was really odd too, because Facebook would not show that comment for like five days. Huh. I have it no ended idea. Up in limbo, I yeah, guess. It was weird. Maybe it needed that manual, uh, you know, content moderation. Or touch. maybe just when I say I think we're being shadow banned again, and all of a sudden seven, seven comments suddenly yeah. appear on our Facebook page. It's creepy. Yeah. Um, Brandon S says the This Is Hell merch store discount <laughs> code word. You'll never hear never. what that word is. We'll never. <laughs> And it's probably uh, painfully Don't. easy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Brandon S. Or I just said Brandon yeah. S. S. L. 
Isel S says proof about God's radio preference. <laughs> nice. And then over on Patreon, we have a few new ones. Uh, Christina says my aunt tuna's casserole recipe. <laughs> Devastating. Riley J says I'll be doxing the bathroom appliance that ruined Chuck's face. <laughs> Jamie K says Soylent Green is people. Yeah. And uh, Felipe C says Langley's browser history just to see what kind of things they Google. <laughs> and then, uh, you know it's porn. Yeah, it's probably porn, fishing equipment, yeah, cars, and uh, exactly <laughs> AR-15 components. <laughs> yeah, that too. Um, and then over on Discord, where they're leaking the intelligence directly. We have Scott Alt Delete saying how to bring about the fully automated luxury gay space anarchism in five easy steps. <laughs> That's a, <laughs> That's nice a good touch. one. Uh, uh, Kaui No, oh, Kilter. We, he came here. He's from Scotland. Oh, he came Kilter. here to a okay. to a. Uh, this is how uh, office hours one time. Unbelievable. He came here for the our holiday office party, oh. and uh, he had to finally finally explain to me that his name is Kilter. Huh. That's a long way to come for office hours. <laughs> you think? Uh, they say uh, the missing hard drives and videotapes from Jeffrey Epstein's personal safe. <laughs> I... In parentheses, just kidding. Please don't force me to ride a motorcycle outside RAF Crofton. <laughs> Right, <laughs> that doesn't sound like a good thing to be doing. No, uh, let's see, uh, and then I think that's it. Okay, uh, so the person with our favorite answer to this week's question mail wins your choice of whatever this is how swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You still have time to leave your answer to this week's question from Elle at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show because we will be announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth. Again, Will, what's Jeff talking about during this week's Moment of Truth? Jeff wonders if we're all Waco. <laughs> this week on Patreon, we're going colonial, which I am telling you can be just as bad, if not worse, than going medieval on someone's ass. Colonialism is awful, and it is far, far from over. Arguably, this year's its 535th anniversary. That's why we have all the parades. When a Portuguese navigator discovered that he could go around the tip of Africa to the Cape of Good Hope and found that the Atlantic and Indian Oceans flow into each other. Of course, real live exploitative uh, colonialism, which views occupied people as nothing more than animals to use for labor, that didn't kick in until 1492 with Columbus locating the Americas. That, that whole process continues. Colonialism is still very alive and kicking us in the ass. Problem is, I gotta admit, I engage in colonialism as well, even colonial practices, and I'm betting everyone listening does too. Whether we recognize it or not, we are all supporters of colonialism, which sucks. And Charlotte was just describing how the anti-abortion movement is definitely a form of colonialism. Also on Patreon, I did not remember somebody bringing war crimes charges against U.S. General Tommy Franks just a little over a month after the 2000 war, 2003 war on Iraq began. So on Patreon, a couple weeks ago, we shared an interview with uh, Colette Mollert of the Belgian organization Medicine for the Third World, which at the time was charging Franks with war crimes. However, that interview was very brief. It ends abruptly. There are some language problems. So two weeks after Colette was on the show, we then had somebody else on the show giving us a more listenable, I guess you could say, 
explanation of what was happening with the charges against uh, Tommy Franks and uh, his the accusations of war crimes rep, uh, against Iraqi sil- uh, civilians. So we had on the show Jan Ferman, who was the lawyer in Belgium representing those Iraqi civilians two weeks later. So we're sharing that interview on Patreon this week. But the only way you can hear me talk about how we are all colonialists and learn about war crimes charges brought against U.S. General Tommy Franks is by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. And that all goes live tomorrow morning at Thursday at 10 a.m. Coming up, Jeff with the moment of truth, the rest of your answers to this week's question from hell, and we will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also be telling you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell. Live from Hangover Country, this is Hell, and Will, I know you have Hefe on the line. One, two, you know what to do, Hefe. One more time. Just one moment. Where did my document go? Reasons to believe. We are all Waco. The nefariousness and misplaced priorities of government actions have eroded the people's trust to the extent that doomsday paranoia begins to make sense as a viable possibility. When I say we are all Waco, I really mean just me. And by Waco, I mean the Branch Davidian specifically. Is it Branch Davidians or Banch Dravidians? It's Davidians because of David Koresh, right? Or just because David? And it's Branch because Banch isn't a word. Koresh is supposed to be from Old Persian, meaning forward-looking or some such nonsense. Why Old Persian, I wonder? Oh, because Cyrus in Old Persian was Koresh. Those old Persians pronounced things in inebriated fashion. What's that guy's name? Cyrus, Kairush, Koresh? He was a regular Mashiach for letting the people of Israel rebuild their Beish Hamikdash. Now when I say I'm like the Bench Dravidians, I don't mean I'm a cult following a charismatic leader who marries a 10-year-old girls, and I don't mean I'm amassing weapons in preparation for the final war of holiness against evil, heaven against hell. What I think I mean is the corporate, military, and government three-headed hellhound has set my teeth on edge. It seems to be fulfilling all my most paranoid doomsday fantasies. Sure, I may follow questionable lines of reasoning, pickle my own turnips, operate in a clandestine economy, and practice unsanctioned sex, but why would you come to me with more machines and enough ordnance to wipe out 30 Milai villages unless you truly were the prophesied beast of destruction? Why massacre 82 children and other innocents and quasi-innocents unless you were hell-bent on stamping out a godly message from godly people. I know the metaphor is still too blurred with my own identity to make sense. Let me see if I can compartmentalize. I mean, I really need to. I'm not an apocalyptic messianic Christian, though I sometimes like to pretend I am. I inhale from a few different quarters of the information atmosphere lately, the idea that the greater the power and wealth disparity between the few at the top and the vast majority in the relatively normal world, 
the greater the likelihood for paranoid conspiracies to develop among the people. Or the greater the likelihood the people can be manipulated into pursuing paranoid conspiracies that foster destructive emotions. Destructive emotions that can lead to destructive behavior. Mass destructive behavior. Seems like the rulers want the people to pursue destructive behavior. Or at least believe things that might lead them to behave destructively. Like, why would you conspire to murder a sensible socialist community leader like Fred Hampton? but leave a slippery snake oil peddling conspiracy monger like Louis Farrakhan alive unless you wanted to instill for generations of black people a suspicion of and hatred for cops. And why would you conspire to fill law enforcement with white supremacists who keep lynching black people under the cover of law unless you wanted to continue to confirm their suspicions far into the 21st century? Why would you torture, massacre, and burn villages and forests full of South Asian civilians unless you wanted to confirm their conception of the West as a profane poison of the soul? Why would you try to cover up your high crimes and make up obvious lies to justify invading Vietnam, Grenada, Panama, or Iraq if you didn't want people to come up with idiotic theories about the moon landing being faked, or the earth being flat, or Parkland being a false flag, or COVID being a PSYOP? Why sneak Nazis out of Germany to work for the U.S. government? Why allow Kissinger to reach the age of a century when you murder in their youth labor leaders, forest and water protectors, people marching for their rights, children playing with toys? Do you want me, fat little old me, to suspect that crime pays and nice folks get buried alive by those who own the dirt? And why? If your contention was that there was no coming war of the government against them, would you descend on the Branch Davidians at their Mount Carmel compound outside Waco with all your choppers, military armor, tanks, guns, grenades, bombs, and gases, and ultimately burn them alive? You acted out their fantasy for them. Now those sympathetic to the idea that the socialist, multicultural, woke government wants to kill sovereign Christians in an apocalyptic war feel confirmed in that belief. And you killed the barely known niche charismatic David Koresh, but left the very world famous, dangerous, charismatic, slippery, snake oil peddling, conspiracy monger Donald Trump alive, so he could go hold a rally at Waco and capitalize on your brutality by feeding the lunatic white supremacist sovereign citizen crowd exactly the elixir that will get them to try to overthrow the government for him. Why would you do that unless you were arming fascists for a war against the people, as so many of us have every reason to believe? Where's that nice FBI negotiator played by Michael Shannon to talk them all down from their fear and rage? Hell, to talk me down from my fear and rage. Why don't I have a, a deep-voiced, slightly lispy, Frankenstein-looking, but nonetheless intensely captivating negotiator of reason to assure me on the other side that this can be all resolved peacefully? Ask yourself this, listeners. If this isn't hell... Why are they making it look and feel like it is? This has been the moment of truth. Good day. Hey there, Jeffy. Uh, Will. Hi, Will. Is Chuck in the bathroom? He is uh, about to be back in the studio. Yeah. How are you doing? 
I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Can't complain. Another Wednesday. I can't believe you can't complain. I'm really good at that. You need any pointers? Just ask me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a it's a weakness. There, there's our man. (laughs) I'm back. Wow, what'd you evacuate next? Uh, No, I had to go feed Mel, and then there was a big issue down there. Couldn't find Uh Mel for a little while. He was outside, and then. There was no wet food left anymore, so I had to find dry food. It was... Oh, man. And then what I missed the moment of truth, so now I have to listen to it on uh, NUR this weekend. I'm very sorry, but you know what? What's that? It will sound better. Because <laughs> I'm going to edit out some of the uh, splooges and coughs. And... Yeah, but I like those splooges and coughs. That sounds great. <laughs> All right, maybe I'll leave one special one in for you. All right, Jeff. Hey, Chuck. Yes? That woman... That woman was not ashamed of her abortion. No. Now you kept trying to get her to say she was she was ashamed. No, I wasn't trying to get her. I was trying. Yeah, to... that's what I think you were trying to do. <laughs> was no maybe way. that. Maybe you think. You know, I've never met you... a woman who was ashamed of their their abortion ever <laughs> in my life, and that's the point I was trying to drive home: is that not you know. First of all, the weaponization and politicization of shame is just awful. And then the second yes. part of it is the, you know, uh, belief that all women feel shame over their reproductive choices, whether they have the kid or not. I know. <laughs> I think it's, it's so just ridiculous. Yeah, it is ridiculous. No, and actually, to be honest with you, I, I was going, all right, she already told you she's not ashamed, Chuck. <laughs> I know. Stop asking her about right. but that. But I really did get to see a lot of different facets of the things that were attack that attack women uh, about reproduction and about reproductive decisions and about reproductive rights so it was as as glib as i might be it was really important the the extent of the interview and i really liked it a lot yeah her she writing was great. yeah her writing is really really great everybody should go check out the work of charlotte shane at charoshane.com jeffy yes sir until next time what oh you're not going to tell me to stay beautiful cuz i'm not going to face plant in the bathroom just to get as beautiful as you (laughs) i'm healing up rather nicely actually (laughs) you looked i mean i'm sorry your injured photograph looked kind of sexy man it looks a lot like uh i took a hockey stick to the face one time (laughs) it looked a lot like that a lot looked a little bit like a rotting um jack-o'-lantern but sexy (laughs) thank you uh that is the sexy halloween costume i wear every year the rotting okay. jack-o'-lantern <laughs> sexy <laughs> Halloween costume. Good luck for you, man. <laughs> it is. All right, Jeffy, until next time. Yeah? Stay beautiful. Oh, no. <laughs> Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. The person with their favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. You still have time to leave. get your answer in under the wire. Leave your answer at Facebook. Tweet it at us. Email it to us. Will. Do we have any more responses to this week's question from hell as I drag this line out to give everybody the opportunity to get one last answer in under the wire? Linux O under the wire on Twitter says Chuck's extensive FBI record. (laughs) Way to finish strong. (laughs) That is a good way to finish strong. My FBI record is mostly my brother's FBI record because he had a huge FBI record. So basically, that's my, just ask for my brother's record. FBI record and that's basically mine the answers I liked the most were I did like uh, 
uh, Edson C. saying whatever it is, it will be discordant with the official narrative because it's a dumb pun. Good old puns. And Fabio L., next week's question from hell. Love the self-reference. Uh, Riley saying that he's going to be uh, doxing the bathroom appliance that ruined my face. <laughs> Again, that's another good self-reference to the radio show. Isn't that doxing you, too? Yeah, it would be. It would be. And I don't have a camera in my bathroom, so... Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> Felipe C. saying Langley's browser history. Jamie K. saying Soylent Green is people. Rock Taster saying that video games are military recruiting disguised as entertainment. Eat Fart 69, the answer to life, the universe, and everything. <laughs> Brayden, this is how merch store discount code word SLS. Proof about God's radio show performance. Always appreciate those references to the show. Scott A. saying how to bring about fully automated luxury gay space <laughs> anarchism in five easy steps. In George Soros's family goulash recipe. I think I might have my favorite, but what's yours? Uh, I'm. It's for me. It's a toss-up between the five easy steps, which is a nice touch, yeah. and uh, Neil C. with the porcupine papers. The porcupine papers is good, but we're <laughs> gonna go with Scott A. You are the winner of this week's question from hell by answering this week's question. What intelligence will you be leaking on our Discord? By saying how to bring about fully automated luxury gay space anarchism in five easy steps. <laughs> So, my answer to this week's question from hell, oh, and by the way, Scott, uh, congratulations, just tell us what piece of This Is Hell swag you want, and uh, that's available right now at thisishell.com when you click on support and send us your mailing address, and we'll get it to you in the mail post-haste. My answer to this week's question from hell, what intelligence will you be leaking on Discord? And that is what I've already, what I will be leaking soon. By the way, leaking sounds gross. Nasty, gnarly pictures of my bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show face. After I fell on the floor. That's who every thanks to everyone who sent in an answer to this week's question from hell. Will, who are our guests on next week's show? Next week we have uh, writer Sharaniya Deepak, who will discuss her article at The Baffler, India's Beef with Beef, Vegetarianism as a Tool for the Punishment and Surveillance. Sharanaya is a, is based in New Delhi, where she writes about food, culture, and conflict. I'm sure vegetarians are going to love that conversation. I'm sure. <laughs> and then returning to the show is Claire Provost and Matt Kennard, co-authors of Silent Coup, How Corporations Overthrew Democracy. Claire is the co-founder and co-director of the new nonprofit Institute for Journalism and Social Change. Matt is co-founder and chief investigator at Declassified UK, a news outlet investigating British foreign policy. Matt is author of two acclaimed books, 2012's Irregular Army and The Racket from 2015, both of which we discuss with Matt on air. Those are a couple of really great interviews, too. Also returning to This Is Hell. Uh, we have historian Gab Gabriel Winant to discuss his new N Plus One article, J.D. Vance Changes the Subject, a Senator from the <laughs> Unconscious. Hmm. Gabriel was on the show in July of 2021 to discuss his then just released book, The Next Shift, The Fall of Industry and the Rise of Healthcare in Rust Belt, America. As always, we will have the past inside the present with Sebastian Vupper, this week in Rotten History from Ronaldo Magaldi, Jeff Dorchin with a moment of truth. A huge thank you to all of this week's producers, Kat Jarvanen, Dan Kugler, Will Ippen. Thanks to Jeff, Ronaldo, Sebastian. Andrew Dan Hill, Richard Norwood, Alexander Jerry, and Theron Hummison, just because. Talk to you tomorrow, Thursday, on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, when I will be hating on colonialism and we'll be playing an interview about a war crimes case being brought against U.S. General Tommy Franks 20 years ago 
which is apparently a thing that actually happened. There's only one way to get over all the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying the simple words, Everybody's stupid. My demon is on my butt. No. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.